This is Your Morning Basket, where we help you bring truth, goodness, and beauty to your homeschool day. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 13 of the podcast. I'm Pam Barnhill, your host, and I'm so happy you're joining me here today. Well, I don't know about you guys, but I have often heard the name Plutarch thrown about in Charlotte Mason circles, especially as I've researched things on the Ambleside online website and also on Cindy Rollins' blog as I read more and more about morning time over there. But I'm going to be perfectly honest. I had no idea who this Plutarch guy was except he was somebody that Charlotte Mason people were supposed to read. Well, I have found us an expert today who can talk to us a little bit about not only who Plutarch was, what he wrote about, how Charlotte Mason used him in her schools, but also how we might use him in our homeschools. Ann White is here to give us some great tips and talk to us a little bit about how Plutarch might help our students. So with no further ado, let's hear what Anne has to say. Anne White is a mom of three, a writer, and a longtime member of the Ambleside Online Advisory Board. She blogs both at Dewey's Treehouse and at AnneWrites.ca. And she also writes for the Ambleside advisory blog, Archipelago. She has a deep understanding of the ideas behind Charlotte Mason's approach to education, and she recently published a book about those ideas called Minds More Awake. Anne has written numerous resources on Plutarch, including the Plutarch Primer, the Plutarch Project, and many Plutarch study guides for Ambleside Online. We're thrilled to have her join us today to talk about how we can incorporate Plutarch into our morning time. And welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. We are so glad to have you. Could you start by telling me a little bit about Plutarch? Who was he and when did he live and what did he do? Well, I had to look up the date because I always forget, but uh, he lived from AD 46 to 127. He was a Greek who became a Roman citizen partway through his life. He was a priest at Delphi and also um, sort of a mayor of that town as well, which meant that he had a lot of connections. He knew a lot of interesting people. He had times at his house when people just came and talked, and he actually ended up writing, having, I don't know whether he wrote them himself or had had them somebody transcribed them, but some of the dialogues actually went into a, a book of essays called the, the Moralia. But he was also a historian, and he was interested in exploring some of the early Greek and Roman leaders and heroes, both the ones that were not so far removed from his own time and some that were so far back that it, he really had to dig sometimes to come up with, with sources. And he often ends up you know, uh, comparing two or three sources, and it is a bit frustrating sometimes. He'll he'll say, you know, so-and-so says this, and so-and-so says that, but, well, we're not sure. It might not have been, but, you know, that's it's so common. You know, things haven't changed that much when you're, you're trying to figure out what did happen 500 years ago, or, you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> sometimes hard to know who, who your best sources are. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, anyway, so he wrote, uh, the book that we're talking about here is actually His Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, also called Parallel Lives, because it's called Parallel Lives because he, in most of them, he took one Greek and one Roman person and tried to pair them up. Sometimes that 
may have been a little bit forced. He may have, you know, taken, you know, tried to, it's interesting how he tries to pair people up. Usually he does a pretty good job, but what we usually do, we don't tend to worry so much about the parallel lives. We just take them as, as they come one at a time. So there are a lot of, uh, there are about 23 pairs of lives that are still around that we can read and uh, four that, that don't have a match. And um, he often, he will refer to, sometimes he'll say, see my life of so-and-so, but we don't have that anymore. So we know that there were some that maybe uh, have disappeared in the meantime. That's fascinating. So speak to just a moment. I never knew that they were paired up. I've always heard Plutarch's lives. I've never heard parallel lives. So speak for just a moment about how he was trying to pair these lives up. Was he looking for you know, comparing or contrasting or, you know, like this is a statesman and this is a statesman. Let's look at how they compare or. Yeah, there, well, it's a, you know, it's a bit of both. Uh, a lot of, since he was what they called, he was the first moral biographer. He was really interested in uh, how character influenced people and, and how people influenced the world around them. So often, yeah, he would choose, you know, one general and, and another general or something like that. Or he might, he might seem to choose by maybe by a character quality, you know, two super brave people or something like that. Okay. Um, it's not something to worry about so much. Again, the, the parallel thing, I, at least in our terms, we just tend to take them one at a time. Although, you know, the comparisons are interesting, right. but we, we don't, we don't put a whole lot of emphasis on. Okay, so he was a historian, basically, Mm -hmm. and he was sharing these histories of lives long before him, but also of some of his contemporaries as well. Yeah, some that were more recent for him, like, uh, would have been, you know, Julius Caesar, you know, somebody who, you know, in relative terms had only died, you know, 100 years or so before he had born, would seem like somebody relatively new at that time. And there might have been some people around who knew some people who knew some people, you know, had had been there. So that's true. Well, how did you become so interested in Plutarch? I wasn't quite at first. When we first started the Ambleside Online curriculum, when it was getting started, my daughter wasn't quite old enough to really to be into Plutarch at that point. So we just concentrated on the things that we were doing. Uh, there was a rotation of Plutarch's lives up on the Ambleside Online website, but I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to it at that time. But after a couple of years, my daughter was about 10, and I thought, well, it's time to figure out what this is about. And I guess we just picked the next one on the rotation and started reading it. And really, I can't even remember whether we got through the whole first term with that or not, but it was, it was really frustrating. We were, it was just kind of a seat of the pants thing. And we, you know, we just, we kept reading, but it wasn't really making a whole lot of sense to us. So the second time around, I think it was, you know, after the summertime. So during that summertime, I had thought, you know, you know what, I really want to do a little bit better this time around. So I'm going to read it through myself and see, you know, what I need to know ahead of time. And I kept, um, you know, reading it and circling things and, and looking things up. And uh, eventually I had enough of it that I felt, you know, this will, this is good. This will work for us this term. And actually it did. And we ended up putting it on the website to share with anybody else who wanted to use it. And then as, as we kept on moving through Plutarch, I just kept adding to them. And there was a lot of, there was some time in there just because of, you know, my own children's ages and our family and whatever. I didn't get anything new done or I started something and didn't finish it. But we just, uh, we did keep going with them, especially when it got easier past few years to access Norse translation online, which we can, we can talk about that afterwards. But anyway, that sort of kind of got things going again. And I started working through the old studies again and redoing some of them to use Norse. And uh, more recently than that, that's uh, turned into a book form as well. 
Right. So this was basically out of necessity because there wasn't anything else out there really that, that you was could it. Use. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was it. Lots of Shakespeare guides out there, but I couldn't find anything to use with Plutarch. So, well, yeah. you, you know, it's really yeah. interesting. I was an English literature major and, you know, I'm very familiar with Shakespeare and I had never heard of this guy named Plutarch at all until I became a little more familiar with Charlotte Mason and even, you know, a lot of other kind of Charlotte Mason curriculum out there, for lack of a better word, don't even mention Plutarch. It was only Ambleside Online where I first saw it. So, Well, it is, it is kind of funny because uh, some of the things you read, it seems that up until about, you know, the last century, everybody knew Plutarch. If you said Plutarch's lives or Plutarch, it seems to have been much more familiar. There's a, an essay by Emerson where he says something like, you know, uh, something so familiar we don't really need to go into detail about, you know, and... Uh, even uh, I found fascinating, there's this passage in Frankenstein where the, the monster's talking about the books he's reading, and one of them is Plutarch's Lives and all the things he was getting out of, out of that. So it just it seems to have, if it's become obscure, that seems to have been only the last century or so. And before that, I think at least knowing basically what Plutarch was, was, was a lot more common. Right. Yeah, that is interesting. Well, tell me, why read Plutarch? When we're reading it with our children, what's our goal? In Charlotte Mason's curriculum, Plutarch's Lives was part of what they called citizenship. So each term under citizenship from about age nine or 10 and up, they had two or three books that dealt with morals and civics and social awareness and and so on. And one of Plutarch's Lives was almost always included under that heading. So one biography of one person. Occasionally, they, if it was a long one, they might split over two terms, but usually it was one person, one, one term. And we should say that a Charlotte Mason term is 12 weeks long and there were three in a year, correct? Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. Some people actually call Charlotte Mason's whole curriculum a character curriculum. So, you know, characters, citizenship, they're, they're so closely tied together. And I think the citizenship books may be Besides the Bible studies, that they got their own subject, but the citizenship books were really kind of the heart of her whole emphasis on, on character and educating for virtue and just ideas like being able to think about what's good for your community and thinking globally as well. I think that those were some of the original goals, and I think those, that hasn't changed. I think that's still the same. There's another passage where Charlotte Mason talks about opening the door I always thought of it as sort of the door of a giant library, but I I think she was actually talking about the the large room. She liked to quote from Psalm 31.8, where it says, you have set my feet in a large room. So we're looking for ideas in education, something that takes us out of our own time, out of our own lives, but shows us how, you know, cultures change, ideas change, but we can still, when we read even something from so long ago, like Plutarch's Lives, we find that people are still the same. And, you know, practically speaking, it teaches us how to be leaders, teaches us how to be followers, gives us some equipment for uh, high ideals. And just, you know, in terms of really practical things, it can teach us about history and vocabulary and all kinds of things like that. So there's kind of two layers. There is the history and vocabulary, but also, you know, so many homeschool families, you know, you get online, they're like, Oh, I'm looking for character training or I'm looking for something yeah, to help teach yeah. my kids virtues. And, and that was, this was it. This was Charlotte Mason's character and virtue yeah. and citizenship mm-hmm. training as well. Yeah. 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 And that, that never goes out of style. That's always relevant. So, I think so. Yeah. Well, t- 
talk to me a little bit about age range. Now, you said you did not start with Plutarch until your daughter was about 10. And I'm assuming you read it in the original, though. Could you speak a little bit to Plutarch for children? And talk to me about how this might be done with a wide age range of children. Yeah, that one's a little trickier. This is one of the books that Charlotte Mason actually had most teachers and parents read out loud. One of the problems was that Plutarch, he often includes unsuitable material. So she didn't really want, unless they could find a version that you know was already sort of cleaned up, um, she didn't really want the students reading it just for themselves. She expected that the teachers or the parents would be able to just kind of uh, edit on the fly as they went. But in a way, that's good because it makes it, it, since it's such a good read-aloud book, it makes it a great choice for morning time or, you know, whenever you uh, have the children together in different ages and groups. I probably wouldn't use it, though, in the original with students much under 10, just because, well, Plutarch's style, at least, you know, especially in the older translations, is still, is quite difficult. And a lot of the things, you know, some of the, the really big ideas that you're talking about, you know, those are things that you're you know, we're aiming at this with older students. My guideline is always, if they're ready to read Shakespeare in the original, they can probably handle Plutarch. Okay. But probably not so much before. Now, there are children's retellings of Plutarch, sort of like Lamb's Tales from Shakespeare, that you, you can access a lot of them online. And I know some people use them so that they can include younger children, or sometimes they just use them as an introduction to the original versions. But for Charlotte Mason students, Plutarch was really something they saved until they were old enough to get the most out of it. It's kind of like, you know, not giving your, your little kids Lego until they're really old enough to make something with it. Or not, you know, no better than to just stick it in their nose. So Yeah. <laughs> like that. <laughs> okay, so talk to me a little bit about translations. And then you mentioned that some families do use some of the children's translations. So I'm gonna go ahead and have you is there a children's translation you would recommend? first of all, and then I'm going to ask you to tell me about your favorite translation of, you know, the originals. There is the children's versions. They kind of range from ones that are so made easy for children that there's hardly anything left. Right. Yeah. Don't uh, recommend right. those. <laughs> tell us a good one. <laughs> there are, yeah, there are a couple on the Baldwin Project you can access there. There's a couple of good ones there. But there's also one you can get on Project Gutenberg by a guy named White. And uh, he pretty much takes Dryden's translation, which we, we can talk about that in a minute, and he takes out the bad parts. He doesn't adapt the language too much. Okay. So if you're looking for something pretty close to the original, but not necessarily easier, just shorter and cleaned up, there, you know, there's White. The ones in between, I'm sorry, I, I can't think of all the names right now, but there, there's a couple on, on the Baldwin Project that are they're not too bad if you're looking for something like that. Okay. And so now talk to us about original Plutarch that where you may have to do a little editing of your own on the fly. Which um, yeah. translations of that well, do you in like? The, in the study guides, we've been including the text and I often do, just so people know, I often do, we, you know, I try and, and uh, take out anything that's going to be really objectionable, but still, you know, leave enough so that you can make your own decisions on it. But when I first started doing the, the study guides, the, the easiest translation online to access was Dryden's which he did that in the 1600s. Charlotte Mason always talked about Norths, and it's like, oh, but Norths is even older. 
And we figure that it's going to, it's got to be even harder because, you know, okay, well, it's a hundred years even before Dryden's and and so on. And it was pretty hard to, it was harder to find at that time. It was harder to access. So when I started writing them, I just, I just based everything I did on Dryden's. Lately, I've been working, reworking them to use Norris. And I find, I really, I enjoy Norris. Sometimes he, uh, he has very, very earthy language, like not meaning, not meaning dirty or anything. He just, he uses, um, very clear metaphors, language that I can see why Charlotte Mason liked it. Do you want to hear a quote? Sure. Yeah. Well, there's this uh, one where Dryden said, he was talking about some people who got outfoxed by Timoleon. And uh, it said that the Carthaginians, this is Dryden's translation, it said the Carthaginians were not a little vexed to see themselves outwitted. But North says they were ready to eat their fingers for spite. You know, ah. And I just, I just read that and I thought, well, you know, whether it's older or whether you think the language is, you know, sometimes more difficult, it's so much, it's, I don't know, I just enjoy his, uh, his way, of, his way of putting his sentences sometimes easier to understand. So it's more colorful. Like, with North, so. Yeah. What might it look like? So we, we have these translations and I should, say that we're going to link to both of those in the show notes. And, you know, we have families have a couple of options. We're going to talk a little bit about your materials later where you do include the translations, but they can also go and find these online at Gutenberg Mm -hmm. or the Baldwin Project. So when I have my Plutarch in front of me, what might it look like in morning time for me to be doing Plutarch with my children? How much should I read? And then what do we do with it once we've read it? Okay, well, Charlotte Mason said she tried to make it easy. She said it should be read without too much explanation or comment. <laughs> she kind of thought of it as a, a, a gift that we were passing from, from one person to another. And I think this takes a lot of pressure off the parents because we don't feel, have to feel like we need to be experts on everything about Greek and Roman history. But at the same time, I remember that first term where we were, you know, kind of blundering our way through Demosthenes. So that's why I've continued to write the study notes. They're really more for the parents than the students, because sometimes we're the, we're the ones that need more, more hand-holding. But when you've got what you want to read, you could start with the first lesson. It's always good to ask some questions and find out what they already know about the person or about the time that's going to be discussed, or try to make some connection with something else that they've already studied, or maybe the last, last Plutarch's life that you read. If it's not the first week you're doing it, you might want to connect with the last lesson and ask for, you could ask for examples of some of the big big ideas that you were talking about, like how someone showed courage or honesty. You can give them a little preview of what's ahead. They can This is before you start. They can look things up on a map. You give them a couple of things to look for if that's going to help them understand the story. You can also talk about vocabulary a little bit. In the study guides, I tend to, they have sometimes long lists of vocabulary, and it's not intended that those be used word for word for word or, you know, it's just three or four is probably enough if it's something that's really, you know, something that they're going to need to know to make sense of the story. It's helpful to go through that ahead of time. Cheryl Mason used to write uh, characters' names on the blackboard as well, if, especially with a book that was being read out loud so they could make those connections. And then you just read a little at a time, go slow, focus on the narrative and the people involved, what they did, what mistakes they made, how their choices affected other people, have students narrate afterwards, either oral or written. They can make entries in books of centuries. You can stop and ask for narration at more than one point in the reading. We, we've often done that, especially, you know, it's almost natural with Plutarch. Sometimes his, his sentences go on and on and on, like, the, you know, like the, 
you know, five semicolons later, you stop and you're still in the same sentence and you go, what just happened there? And sometimes that is not just a, you know, a constructed question you're actually <laughs> asking. And, and sometimes they, sometimes the kids can tell you better than you've figured it out yourself at that point. Right. And so we shouldn't be afraid to take Plutarch in very small chunks, right? We shouldn't feel like a mm-hmm. failure if all we're getting through is a few paragraphs or a couple of pages a day. Mm-hmm. That's fine. Yeah, I know. I think uh, Cindy Rollins has said that she used to actually break because she was doing morning time, you know, every day they would, uh, she would break it down into quite small chunks and so she would say sometimes they would only get through, you know, a very little bit at one time, but that was okay. It's whatever works best, whether you're doing it once a week or more often, that would also depend how much rather than trying to get through a whole life in a term that that is a good goal. But you know, if it takes longer, and you just want to do a little bit at a time, then that's okay, too. Hearing you say that, you know, because this is about citizenship and character and virtue, that we're not going to get lost in the minutia of Plutarch, uh, worrying about facts and dates and things like that. But we really want to focus on the ideas. So how might you help? What suggestions could you give to moms for helping have discussions and focusing on those big ideas that Plutarch's going to bring to the table? Well, hopefully some of it is just, you know, if you, if the students are, are narrating and, you know, hopefully some of those ideas might just come out, you know, from the narration and any, you know, they might just pop out with their own ideas and, and things that, that they want to say about what they heard. But, you know, if they don't, you can raise points like asking for examples, you know, of where you've seen particular character traits. And then let the discussion continue from there, because maybe there will be a disagreement over whether somebody did something. Was it actually a generous thing to do? Was it just a a bid for popularity? Sometimes Plutarch will even, he'll say, you know, they say that he did this because, but I think it was, you know. So actually, Plutarch is really, really good for that. Not everything is is always cut and dried. You know, he'll say that, you know, so-and-so was always, always generous, but sometimes the people will I don't know. They, people are not always consistent. And that's, uh, that really comes through. One thing about Plutarch's writing really shows, I think, the human side of people. Often he's very funny, too. But uh, even on the serious side, he, uh, he makes it easy to see that it doesn't matter if they're kings or, or generals or whatever. They, you know, they still come from somewhere. They still have struggles. They still, you know, still make mistakes sometimes. Right. Would you say, Anne, that these are kind of, you know, how we take young kids and we read them fairy tales and we do that because good is good and bad is bad. And you can clearly see those differences as opposed to like, you know, stories that are written for adults where you have kind of these archetypal characters and there are all of these different nuances and things like that. Is Plutarch kind of a good in between for those kinds of things? There's a quote from Charlotte Mason says that Plutarch is kind of she says he's like the Bible in just telling you what happened and letting you you decide, you know, this was what the person did. Now, I, I think sometimes uh, actually Plutarch does come down and say that was a really evil thing of him to do. So I, I don't think he's always quite non-judgmental. He's, he's coming from somewhere and he's got opinions, too, of silly things and evil things and stuff like that. But no, I, I don't think that his his people turn out to be. I don't think they're they're all black and white or you know just archetypes. They most of them were. I mean, there are a couple that are sort of legendary, but most of them were actually you know they are historical characters. They have a time, they have a place, they have a background, they have a family, they have a disagreement with each other. Uh, you know, there's it's not always 
not always easy for them to decide what to do. And it's not always 100%. Yeah, I should have done that. Definitely should have done that. Sounds like there's a lot of opportunity for great discussion and maybe even debate around the morning timetable when you're reading Plutarch. Yeah, I have heard that. And I've heard, I actually heard last summer, I heard a story from a co-op in Tennessee where they had actually had a debate. They had done two terms of Plutarch. And at the end of the second term, they, um, they had a debate over whether or not, you know, the two characters, they had different issues. They said, which one would be a better president of the United States? And, you know, which one would be better this or better that? And they actually had a, the, the students in that group actually had a, a formal debate over it. And uh, as I heard it, it continued on even after the school year was done. They were still talking about it later on. Oh, that's awesome. That's really great. <laughs> it was. <laughs> yeah. Well, what are some of the big ideas that Plutarch brings to the tables? We talked a little bit about citizenship and virtue. But of that, what kind of ideas will we find when we start to study Plutarch? That is a really big question. <laughs> <laughs> so lots of different ideas is what you're telling me. Yeah. I mean, all, all, you know, all the character virtues and, and, you know, positive, negative, lots of opportunities, since a lot of them have to do with leaders who were also military leaders. For a lot of them, it kind of went hand in hand. If they were elected to a a public office, they were also expected to be leading in the military as well. And a lot of the stories that he's telling often have to do with, you know, battles and power shifts and sieges and things like that. So there's a lot of things about uh, courage, using wise military strategies, (laughs) even things like, you know, how to get elected, stuff like that. But a lot, if you're looking for the sorts of stories that come up a lot of the time, it will be, you know, how he won the battle or how they managed the people under them, whether that was in a, in a military sense or just as a, as a civic leader. I think there's a, a Charlotte Mason narration question that, that's come up. I think it's in one of her books as, you know, how did, uh, under Pericles, how did they beautify the city? What great, you know, improvements did they make? And that, that was during, you know, the building of the Parthenon and all that stuff during the golden age of Athens. So it's not always about wars. There's there's other things that, that go on as well. Things like uh, issues. There's one also in the time of Pericles where they're at war and he has to make a decision whether or not what to do with all these people that live in the surrounding area outside the walls of the city. And he brings, he makes the decision to bring the people into the city for their own safety, but it causes all kinds of other problems. And there's a plague and, and eventually you know, Pericles ends up getting blamed. So there's all kinds of risks that you take when you're in power because you know you're the you eventually it stops with you and you know you have to you have to make those decisions it's not always easy right and it lets you see some of the nuances you know no decision is ever easy because there are so mm-hmm. many different things to consider okay so are any of the lives about women or is it all men <laughs> There are women in some of the stories, but yeah, I, I don't think anybody's ever asked me. No, uh, all the ones that I'm aware of, they're all named after men. But he does have some good women characters as well. And Publicola's daughter, uh, Valeria, and her, and her friend, they uh, they get sent over to the other side as hostages during a war, but they kind of get bored. They're left over on, uh, literally on the other side of a, of a river with nothing to do, so they decide to uh, make a break for it and swim home. You can just imagine these teenage girls doing this and then they're showing up, you know, all wet at, at her father's house and he's not impressed and sends them right back again. <laughs> but uh, there are other female characters as well. Fun. Okay. Well, 
talk to me about where would you start? Because like you said, there are a number of different stories. So if I were going to start, do you have one or two that would be best for me to start with? Well, I've always liked Publicola. It was, I think we started it as our second attempt at Plutarch because something Charlotte Mason had said, she said that the children can never get enough of Publicola. I didn't know who Publicola was, but okay, if they can never get enough of Publicola, we'll, we'll try that one out. And what it turned out was it was a good choice because it's fairly, it's shorter than some of the others. And there isn't too many. One of the lessons is a, a little bit gory, but most of it, there isn't too much that would need to be omitted. And Publicola, I like him because he's a, he's, he seems to be one of the good guys. I always said uh, some of the characters are really more complex and maybe better saved, you know, for a couple of years until the, the kids are a little bit older and a little bit, you know, more familiar with the style. But Publicola is pretty easy. It's, pretty easy to understand what's going on. So that's one place. Oh, another idea would just be to start with somebody that you've heard of. You know, Plutarch wrote lives of, of uh, Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great and, you know, other people that a lot of people have heard of. So, you know, uh, his uh, his life of Brutus is a good one. And that, that, you know, goes with Julius Caesar. That was actually one that Shakespeare drew on for, for his own plays. Plutarch was one of Shakespeare's favorite writers as well. It's really interesting sometimes to see the, the parallels that come out or how Shakespeare drew on the Plutarch story to construct his play. That is interesting. Yeah. Well, tell me a little bit about your resource guides that you've put together. How might those help a family to get started with studying Plutarch? Most of what's in the books, we just really did the books as a convenient form for people because what's, most of what's in them is actually on the Ambleside online website and can be accessed for free, you know, other than a, a bit of introductory material. A lot of people had just said, you know, is it possible to get it in so I don't have to print out 50 pages every every term? The one that I worked on, the last one, the Publicola one, I really, I put it, I, I did put a little bit of extra into that, which is also, again, that's been updated and added to the Ambleside online website as well. So if you want to see what's in the books, they, they really, most of it really is on the website as well. It's just, you know, some people would just prefer to have it in a Kindle version or a print version. But I, with the Publicola one, I, I tried to do a little bit of extra, I guess you'd say, hand-holding for the parents, especially because I, I remember what, you know, you're just getting this big wad of stuff about a time and a place that you may not be that familiar with, especially at the beginning. I, I put in a few places where this is a good place to stop and narrate. <laughs> and so on. And, and then as it goes on, you know, I think people get more comfortable with it and they, they should be able to kind of uh, figure that out for themselves. Okay, so I've looked at a sample. I haven't looked at the book itself. We are going to use it in our co-op next year. But basically, you have the text there that you have, for the most part, taken the worst pieces out of and families, you know, mothers might still decide to edit a little more on the fly. And then interspersed within the text, you have suggestions for them to stop and narrate. Is there any other information that's in there? Yeah, anything. I usually I put a list of vocabulary in, which again you don't you know you don't need to go through that word for word for it, but it's just it's to save you having to look things up in another place. It's right you know it's right there. Also, discussion questions. Sometimes I draw from scripture parallels. Anything else that seems like it might be a you know a good point to bring out during discussions. Any other you know bits of information that might be helpful, such as. A bit of, sometimes Plutarch does assume that you know who so-and-so was or what such-and-such such a battle was. 
So if, I, if it's something I've had to look up, I will, I will usually, uh, I will add that in as well. Anything that I think might be helpful and put it all in one place for people. Okay. So if we wanted to study Publicula, where would we start with that? Which book of yours would we get? Well, the Publicula study is on the website, but it's also the book that we call the Plutarch Primer. Okay. So that is just the, just the Publicula study. Okay. And then what will I find in the Plutarch Project? The Plutarch Project, we have the first volume of it came out this year, and that's just the three that lives that were already scheduled on the Ambleside Online website. We have a, a rotation of several years so that there are, you know, you, you know what's coming up and what, what the next one is to do each term. So the three that were scheduled for this school year are in, in volume one. Okay. Um, and who are they? The three for the, this current school year are Marcus Cato, the censor, Philip Heyman, and Titus Flaminanus. Okay. And so those guys are included in the Plutarch those Project. Are the, those are the three. Volume, volume one. one. Right. And volume two should be coming out early next year. Great. Great. <laughs> well, Anne, thank you so much. I was totally clueless before we started doing this. And I really appreciate all the great new information that I've learned about an interesting way, compelling way to teach character, virtue, and citizenship to my children. So I appreciate you coming on. Oh, well, you're most welcome. Thank you. And there you have it. Now, our basket bonus for this episode is a procedure list for the steps that Anne gave us for doing a Plutarch lesson. If you've been around my blog for a very long time, you know that procedure lists are some of my favorite ways to tackle homeschooling subjects in kind of a no-brainer way for mom, taking all the decision fatigue out of homeschooling by making a list of steps that you can follow to teach a specific lesson printing that out and sticking it, say, in your morning time binder. So what I've done is I took the steps that Anne gave us in the podcast today for doing a Plutarch lesson, and I typed them up on a procedure sheet for you to put in your morning time binder and to keep handy if you attempt to do Plutarch in your homeschool. So you can head on over to the show notes for this episode. That's edsnapshots.com forward slash YMB13 to download your very own procedure list. And thank you so much, guys, for joining me here today. I hope you found lots of useful information like I did. All of the resources and links to the different Plutarch translations are available in the show notes, so you can get those there. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with another great episode for you. Until then, keep seeking truth, goodness, and beauty in your homeschool. school.